Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you are here. Hope you will enjoy being in the Word. And so just, if you will, let me pray real briefly and kind of get my thoughts together. So, Lord, thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for the privilege of opening your Word. We do pray your blessings on our time. Pray you'll teach us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in a few passages this morning, a few different ones. We will be in Mark chapter 10, if you want to start there. And then we'll be over in Matthew oh, chapter 16 and back over. I'm going to tie some things together. I have got to get this flower out of my sight. So uh, Mike left this up here for me, I think. I think it's, uh, I think it's Brenda's Christmas present. So step that off, off to the side. Hope I did not spoil the surprise, Brenda, with, with this. In Mark chapter 10 is where I started my studies on the glory of God. Mark chapter 10, we saw last night that James and John come to Jesus and say, we want you to do whatever it is we ask of you. He says, what is it you want me to do? In fact, if you want to, you can listen or follow along. We might as well do Mark chapter 10. Verses 35 through 41. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, And they said, Grant or give that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup? that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then verse 41 and hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant towards James and John. Now we're going to see there's more in this passage, and as so often is the case in the Bible, we just can't start here. There's a place that will tie things together a lot of times in Scripture. If you say things in America now, like 9-11, if you say 9-11, then there are mental pictures that come to mind. If you, no one was around during that particular time and you were to say 9-11, it wouldn't have the same kind of... And so sometimes, we, sometimes there are things in the Bible that are pointed out that God has left clues for us to dig into. And so for us, what we have to do is drop down into their world. What we are so prone to do is to take God's word and bring it up to our world and look around and make application with us. Our first responsibility is to drop down and see what God's word says about this. And so James and John come to Jesus and say, we want to sit in your glory. And so when Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking for, a lot of critics or a lot of uh, commentaries have been very critical of James and John. And they say that they are selfish, that they are self-interested, that they are asking something that is really just brazen to ask Jesus for. Because after all, last night what we saw were the different 
just even just five truths about the glory of God. And the glory of God is vastly beyond our, our comprehension. And so when they say, we want to sit in your glory, one on your left and one on your right, commentators will usually rip them apart pretty well. And so I jotted down some things when I was studying this. While some of the accusations against James and John stick, there are other matters to consider. At least they left everything to follow Jesus. At least they valued the pearl of great cost and pursued him. At least being with Jesus changed them and their priorities of what was of genuine value. In John chapter 6, verse 66, after Jesus says some hard sayings, there was, it says that many of his disciples were no longer walking with him. And so at least James and John still were walking with Jesus. At least they stayed the course and did not give up, despite the disappointments that the way that God worked was often different than how they thought that it should be. At least they wanted to be in glory with Jesus. And at least they realized it was his glory and not their own. And so there's a phrase that will occur in the book, by the way, what do you pray for when you pray? Because all this language is used as a prayer request language, where it says, grant us or give us. It's the same word that's used in what people call the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer. The same word where it says, give us this day our daily bread. So grant or give that we may sit in your glory is prayer language. And so what do you pray for when you pray? At least James and John believe Jesus can answer their prayers. At least their prayer had a spiritual element to it. A lot of times in my own prayer life, I'll look and I have to force myself just to pray in things related to God because there are so many family situations, finances, you name it, sickness sometimes. And just to stop and focus on the eternal and have to do that. At least they asked to be a vital part of the glory of Jesus after walking with him for some three and a half years. This was more than Judas believed, and this was much more than Judas wanted. At least they believed in the identity and the mission of Jesus, which was something vastly beyond what the Pharisees and Sadducees believed. At least the prayers of James and John had an eternal consequence to it. So by the way, what do you pray for when you pray? What comes after your own, Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever it is that I ask of you. And so as we drop down into their world, we are going to see that there are a lot of parallels in our own life. But I think you'll see that why James and John ask what they ask makes perfect sense. Mark 10 did not just happen. There were events that took place that led to this. Now, we're going to have to do the unpardonable sin in some churches, and that is go from one book to another book. Now, you can handle this, right? You can go from Mark. You can go backwards to Matthew. If you want to go over to Matthew chapter 16, it will be the parallel text for where we will be. The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the promised servant of Yahweh. It was written to a non-Jewish audience, very little Old Testament references to it. The Gospel of Matthew was presented to a Jewish audience, and it has tons of Old Testament references in it. 
the Gospel of Matthew is presented to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is the promised anointed one, Messiah, Christ. And accordingly, everything in the Gospel of Matthew points towards this. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that some of you in here may know and some may not in the sense of the, a lot of this stuff I didn't know in my own studies when I started, so maybe you won't as well. But the Old Testament term Messiah, and by the way, the Hebrew Messiah and the a Jewish word Messiah and the Greek word Christos, we get Christ from this. A Jew would not understand what Christ is because that's not a Hebrew word. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Both mean the anointed one of God. And so the term the anointed one, a messianic term, in and of itself has nothing to do with a death. has nothing to do with uh, sacrificial atonement. Go through if you want to. Uh, we won't do it here, but Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm. It talks about him ruling the nations with a rod of iron. It talks about the wrath being poured out. And so nothing about his death, per se. Now, don't misquote me. Don't come away from here saying, did you hear what that man said? That He said Messiah wasn't going to die. The Messiah was going to die, but as far as the term itself, has to do with reigning, has to do. It could be translated in a kind of a loose translation, king. The Messiah is king. And it's very important because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is going to be presented. And you cannot have a kingdom without a king or a queen. It is not an elected position. It is one granted by God. And so in Matthew, it presents that if you want to, you can just, you can just listen if you want to. Go back and check these verses on your own if you want to. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist appears. He's the first prophet in 400 years. He has a very simple message to the Jewish people. Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, there have been some uh, atrocious things written about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They're the same thing. Jewish-wise, heaven will be substituted a lot of times for the name of God. They thought that they would profane the name of God, so they would say, heaven that's why jesus says don't swear by heaven in matthew it's written that way now most people i've never heard anyone actually swear by heaven myself but it's what the jews would do and so to in order they took where god says you shall not take my name in vain they took that to the nth degree and actually took it so they wouldn't even say god's name god nowhere told them not to say i am not to say yahweh when Moses goes to Egypt, Moses says, what name shall I tell the people? God did not say, I'm not telling. And don't ask again. God says, Yahweh, I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. Over Moses' head, I mean, just clueless in what God said. But God never, ever, ever said, do not utter his name. What God said was, do not utter his name in vain. What the Pharisees did and other people did was to do this kind of outer layer of law so that they wouldn't even say God's name at all. And so a lot of times they'll substitute heaven for this. And so repent, why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, why? 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Same thing. And by the way, with this, you have hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the kingdom of God. Nobody ever approached John the Baptist and said, what do you mean the kingdom of heaven is at hand? It's all throughout the Old Testament. The promised king. In most Christmas pageants, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. And the government singular shall rest on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. My wife and I have two children. One's a son. We did not think about naming him Eternal Father when it came time to do the birth, birth certificate. 9-6, people quote 9-7, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob. This is out of Luke 1.30 as well. All this talks about the kingdom reigning. There shall be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, kingdom of God reference, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's not going to happen by itself. It's going to happen by the direct act of God. So repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is the first Old Testament prophet in 400 years. Gets the people ready. John is arrested. Jesus picks up the message. The first words out of Jesus' mouth, public ministry-wise, in Matthew chapter 4, is repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 5 through 7, he speaks as a king. He tells the people who are gathered there, you have heard it written that such and such, but I tell you. Now that is either that is either true or it is a blasphemy. Now, if I were to say, it says in the Bible this, but I tell you this. By the way, a lot of televangelists do that, but that's another story. And y'all watch Pastor's Pride, just make sure he's, he's true to God's word with this. Jesus says, you've heard it said that a man should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks upon a woman with lust, he's committed adultery in his heart. He speaks as a king. You get to the end of Matthew chapter 7. They're amazed. Nobody has spoken this way. Nobody has spoken with this authority. He didn't quote anybody. In fact, sometime on your own, go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and following, opening verses. In the synagogue, he opens the scroll. In the Sermon on the Mount, he opens his mouth and speaks. He's the king talking to his kingdom subjects, and he tells them, this is what is required to live in my kingdom. Now, Matthew chapter 10, might just want to take a peek at Matthew chapter 10, then we are going to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 10 is a fascinating section to me. Mike mentioned last night about lack of discipleship, and I grew up with lack of discipleship. And I read the Bible and tried to do the best that I could. And I grew up in the dark ages. I grew up before there was Internet and before there was um, all these accesses and study Bibles and DVDs and things. So I uh, had some 
some people do the best they could as far as I grew up in the country and they have very very loving people around me but as far as Bible stuff we just didn't have it and so as a baby Christian reading the Bible as a, in my early teens or even earlier than that I would read the Bible and I would come across this word that I had no idea what it meant Gentiles Gentiles show up all over in Scripture. So in Matthew chapter 10, I believe it's verses 5 through 7, Jesus tells, he sends out the 12. And he tells them not to go to the Gentiles. In fact, let me read this. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And I remember thinking or asking, who are these people? And then I remember also thinking, I am so glad that I am not a Gentile. Now, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's like Galatia, Gentalia, or Gentile land, or, or whatever that it is. And so, you probably don't have a sign for that, do you? <laughs> yeah, not Jewish. The way the Jews looked at the world, there are two types of people. Jews and those who ain't. And the ones, they would not say ain't. Since they, since Jewish people and non-Jews. And so the Gentiles, the, the Hebrew word is goyim. The Greek word is ethne. We get our word ethnic from this. So many, many times in the Old Testament when you see the nations, then it will be the goyim, the Gentiles. In Psalm 2, that messianic psalm, why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. This Messiah, his Christos, his Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart. We see that in today's society. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And so with this, think how different the Bible would be if it ended in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, the 12 are told to go only to the Jews, don't go to the Gentiles. And some of you have read ahead, and you know that Matthew 28 ends exactly the opposite way. Take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. So me personally, I am glad that the gospel does not end right here. Now God sees the fuller picture. This is the unveiling, the disclosing, the progressive revelation of God. So in Matthew chapter 10, he sends the 12 out. Don't go to the Gentiles. Now, we don't have time to go there, but sometime on your own, you may want to go to Matthew 12 because that is where the unpardonable sin is committed. And the unpardonable sin is the rejection, the national rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish leaders. And so Matthew 12 changes everything. No longer is the message going to be repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And no longer is the message going to be the same way. Matthew 12, they cannot deny, the religious leaders cannot deny the miracles that Jesus did. They had to deny the source. He is not of God. He is of Beelzebub, which is another way of saying he does what he does by the means of Satan. And so then in Matthew chapter 13, Verse 1 says, on that day. On what day? On the day that the religious leaders rejected the Messiah. Now, he's still going to be king. We're going to see that. But then Matthew chapter 13, 
are parables, seven of them, as I recall. English lit majors always have to check their numbers. The parables are, are kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to such and such. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to seed sown along the road. I say, start speaking to them in parables. He's never done that before. At some time on your own, read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, straightforward sentences. And then read Matthew chapter 13. He tells them parables. And they say, why? The disciples come to him and say, why do you talk to them in parables? You've never done this before. He says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and to them it has not. Parables give information for those who are walking with Lord, with the Lord. Parables conceal information from those who do not. And now the kingdom is still going to come, but just not right now. Now, Matthew 16, here's where we go, and then we'll head over to Mark's gospel. Matthew 16, they are in Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of Galilee. And so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, 13, they ask that. Verse 14 and they said, some say John the Baptist, and some Elisha, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Now look what Peter says. You are the Christ. Let me do this in the Greek. I think in the Greek. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Four definite articles in the way it's written in the Greek text, done so for emphasis. You are not a son, you are the son. You are not a Christ, you are the Christ. It is not a God, it is the God, the son of the living one. Emphatic in this. Now it's important, notice what it says. Now you're familiar with this verse, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Now notice with us, in Matthew 12, he's rejected by the nation. Jesus, well, let me put, Peter says of Jesus, you are the Christ, not you were the Christ. Not you were the Christ, but they rejected you. You were the Christ, but you're not going to reign. Matthew 16 is a monumental chapter in Scripture. So Matthew 16 is, you still are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. It is also the first time that the word church occurs in Scripture. He says in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church, and he uses a future tense. He does not say, I have been building my church ever since Adam and Eve's time. This is the first time that the word church occurs in Scripture, and he says, I will build my church. Now put yourself down in the original disciples situation. They have a clue of what he was talking about. They weren't told to go out and repent the kingdom of the church is at hand, or they weren't told to go out and tell everybody the church is getting ready. He is discipling them in private. They will take their message public in Acts chapter 2, at least in regard to this. So Matthew 16, you are the Christ, not you were the Christ. I will build my church. And if you mark your Bibles, beloved, and somebody check Mike Sprott's Bible, see if it's marked from time to time. If you mark your Bibles... Matthew 16:21 is so important. Matthew 
This is the first time that Jesus openly talks about his death. That's important. The 12 would have no idea about his death up to this time. Matthew 16 21, Jesus began to show him, let's go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Since the first time, he never talked about his death, about his resurrection. But this is the first time. So if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount and you're reading this as a Christian and you're expecting the Messiah to die, you're kind of reading into this. If you drop down into their world, this was brand new news for them. In fact, you see how Peter responds. Peter takes him off to the side and rebukes him. This will never happen to you. This is the strongest language possible in the Greek to say this will never, ever, ever happen to you. Then Jesus says, thank you, Peter, you're such a friend. Thank you for looking out for me. You know the text, right? Look at this. It's a pretty important chapter, wouldn't you think? Now notice also, verses 24 and 25, this is the first time that Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. And put yourself again in the 12 in their place before they had talked about the kingdom and all the kingdom glories that would be and the privileges and the beauty of the kingdom when it came in. And now they're told what is required of anybody to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. That's not easy. Take up your cross. Luke adds the word daily. And follow me. Akalotheo has a lot of times, the Greek word has a lot of times a sense of follow after as a disciple. Now this is so different than the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he talks about deny yourself. That doesn't do with reigning yet. Now he talks about take up your means of execution. Now for them, who lived in a world where in all probability every one of them had seen, had seen many crucifixions, before he mentioned a cross that he would die on, he mentioned a cross that they had to take up. This is some chapter. You are the Christ, not you were the Christ. I will build my church. First announcement of the death of Jesus. The cost of true discipleship. And then along with this, Matthew 16 is the first time in the entire Bible that Jesus teaches on the glory of God. And so the last two verses with this, verses 27 and 28, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and within recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if I were among the twelve, and Jesus said that, there are some of you who are not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, whoop, hand would go up, I would volunteer, wouldn't you? And so look what takes place. The transfiguration is Matthew chapter 17. The transfiguration is a preview of the kingdom glory on the face of Christ. It is just a snapshot, just a temporary unveiling. In fact, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 32, it says they saw his glory in referencing to Jesus. Now, it is with this that we can now go to the gospel of Mark. If you want to just take a peek, the end of chapter 8 of Mark we we'll just scan some things to show the parallel passage. In Mark 
827. In Mark 827, they're at Caesarea Philippi. That would be Matthew 16. Verse 31, he began to teach them that he was going to die. Verse 34, he talks about taking up your cross, denying yourself and such. Then he says in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, <coughs> excuse me, and by the way, they go hand in hand. I, I'm not crazy about terms like liberal and conservative as it relates to Bible. It is either Bible believing or Bible rejecting. People like to use the word liberal theology. Non-Bible believing theology would be a much more accurate description. And what, quote, liberal theology wants to do is separate the person from G of Jesus and the words of Jesus. And you cannot do it. Because he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, they go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And this one who cannot be separated from his word said, you will die in your sins unless I'm your savior. And you will spend eternity in hell without me. He's the one who promises to judge everybody on that day. You cannot divorce the person of Jesus from the words of Jesus. But look how Mark chapter 8 begins, the last part. When he comes with the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So there's the parallel passage in Matthew 16. And then here's the transfiguration again in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, look what takes place. He's, some of those are going, not going to taste death. Last part of verse 1, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so the coming kingdom, power, and glory of God is what the transfiguration. Now, he took with him Peter, James, and John. If you're Peter, James, and John, this is not a bad day. They get to hear the audible voice of God. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased to hear him. They get to see a vision of Moses and Elijah. And so then look what takes place. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 9. How hard this would be. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should be raised from the dead. So Peter, James, and John go up and see the glory of God on the face of Christ, hear the audible voice of God, see Moses and Elijah, and when they're coming down from the mountain, they are, not, are prohibited from telling anybody. How hard do you think that would be? Now these guys were not good liars. I hope you're not a good liar. We had somebody stand up. I didn't know that was <laughs> under conviction. But, uh, if anyone's a good liar, they have practiced at this. And so Peter, James, and John, what are they, what are they going to say when the other nine say or ask, what did you do up there? Nothing. <laughs> what did you see? Nothing. We didn't see Moses. We did not see Elijah. And by the way, would you sleep that night? If you had heard the audible voice of God, seeing the glory of God on the face of Christ, seeing Moses and Elijah, I don't think they slept for a month. I don't think they ever looked at Jesus the same way again. In fact, we're going to see this tomorrow when we come to the Lord's table. We're going to see how they looked at him.
All right, now think this one through. Peter, James, and John see the glory of God. And you can just listen, or if you want to, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 is Peter's death row epistle. He is getting ready to die. I've talked to people who are, are getting ready to die. Uh, it changes the conversation. I've gone into people who have walked with the Lord and have their spiritual bags packed, and they're going home to be with their Savior. And it's almost a joyous time. And some of the conversations I've had with people who had 24 to 48 hours left to live. And just, uh, I've seen the other two, I've gone in there with people who have not known the Lord, and there's that sense of fear as they should have as they step into eternity. What I found out is that people talk about what's important to them. So Peter's getting ready to die. He knows from John 21, Jesus signified the manner of death by which Peter would glorify God. There's a glory of God reference, by the way. But you know what Peter brought up? Of all the things that he got to do and see Jesus do, Peter didn't say, I walked on water. Peter didn't say, I saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. Peter didn't say, I saw the 5,000 fed. Peter didn't say, I looked inside the empty tomb. Peter didn't say, I saw Jesus ascend into heaven. The one thing that he went back to on his death row epistle, and better still, the one thing that the Holy Spirit brought to mind, was the transfiguration. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is, our, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So they never got over this. Never did. Peter, James, and John would never look at Jesus the same way. Now think how this would change things. When the twelve are arguing about, as they, as they did quite often, as they were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom, whatever it was that the other nine brought up didn't come close to what Peter, James, and John saw. I think I'm the greatest in the kingdom because I helped Zacchaeus down from the tree. Yeah, that ain't nothing, little bozo. Rub his head. I mean, whatever else the other nine did. Peter, James, and John could look at them kind of smugly and say, eh, that ain't nothing. Just kind of small, kind of like you would do with a child or something. They saw the glory of God on the face of Christ, told not to tell anybody. All right, now with this, can you handle one more turning for the last time to another passage? Or you can just listen. There's more information given in Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 and 28. Now Matthew 19, of course, is after the transfiguration. Matthew 19, you've got the rich young ruler who has just left. And so put yourself in Peter's position. Verses 27 and 28 of Matthew 19, right after the rich young ruler left. 
I always enjoyed Peter. Even as a baby Christian, I enjoyed Peter. I did not like Paul as a baby Christian. I just didn't like him. I just thought he was too hard, too straight, too pushy. Peter, I enjoyed Peter. Yeah, you know, I think so many people can identify with that. You know, wanting to say the right thing and not wanting to do the right thing and often not doing this. I said, the rich young ruler leaves, and Peter says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? What's in it for us? Matthew 28. Now remember, as we read this, we have to read it with kind of new understanding eyes. Jesus is talking to someone who has already seen a smidgen of the glory of God. He is also talking to someone whom he has restricted from saying anything about what he has just said or what he's previously said. So look at verse 28, how Jesus answers him. And Peter says, what's in it for us? Verse 28, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne or literally throne of his glory, you also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a glory of God reference. And so I would love to see the, the eye contact. I mean, Peter would be looking into the eyes of Jesus. He can't say anything out loud. You mean like we saw on the mountain? You, is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. I don't think Peter said anything out loud. I think he just kind of, I wouldn't anyway. I, I kind of presumed he would not either. All right, now that being said, over to Mark chapter 10, we'll tie a few things together. Now look at this, beloved. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 35. Now, someone, something's missing in this picture, right? All right, now, again, I was an English literature major, and math is not my strongest thing, but I can handle this one. All right, look what it says in Mark 10, 35. And James and John went to Jesus. All right, hmm. All right, let me see. I can do this math-wise. Three people on the Mount of Transfiguration, two people, and Mark chapter 10. All right, you want to do it again? Three people, two people. Somebody is missing in this picture. James and John did not come to Jesus. Or excuse me, James and John did not come to Simon and said, Hey, Simon, let's go ask Jesus to sit in his glory. James and John go without asking Peter anything about this. When it says in verse 41, the ten began to feel indignant, nobody did more so than Peter. I would love to have a heart monitor, an EKG or something on Peter. When James and John asked to sit in the glory, and Jesus has already said in Mark 9, don't say anything about this. And now they're saying, we want to sit in your glory on your right and on your left. Now look what Jesus said in verse 38 in response to them. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking for. Now James and John probably thought that Jesus did not know what they were asking for. Your face, voice of God, Moses, and Elijah, don't you remember that? That's what we're asking. It's interesting in the Greek, they've got the word that's usually translated but, B-U-T. And six times in a row it occurs. 
And every time it says, they said, but Jesus said, but they said, but Jesus said, but they said, but Jesus said. There's a contrast in this. Now, what Jesus said in a nutshell, James and John were looking at this. You've got the goodies. Open up your bag and give it to us. And what Jesus said was, it's going to cost you. Because if you are going to partake of my glory, there's a cross. There's a cup. There's a baptism. All of this. If you're looking for your reward on earth, you'll be very disappointed with God. When, when Betsy and I were in Dallas, we worked for a year with older singles, 30-year-old up and singles. There's a lot of difference between a 30-year-old and up single versus a 22-year-old single. 22-year-old single, check them out. I don't know if there are any 22-year-old and up singles. You go into a room full of 22-year-old singles. They're scoping the crowd. The whole time it's like this, scoping the crowd. Who's here? I want to be seen. I want to see who's around here. Type deal. Nothing wrong with that. It's just how it is. A 39-year-old single who's never been married, never had kids, and the two younger sisters are married and have kids, and what's wrong with me? Now, we love this group. I tell you, we went there the day our daughter was born. We left. I left the hospital and went to that group for the first time. So I was there for a while, and they said, um, Greg, we want you to do something. We want you to do whatever it is we ask of you. Now, I knew they weren't going to say, you want to sit in your glory, one on your right, one on your left. And so I was, I was prepared. But I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, we want you to do a, a preparation for marriage seminar. I said, I'd be glad to. Where two or more are gathered and they're single, a preparation for marriage seminar will emerge. And we packed the place out. And so I did it this way, and it's the same answer in a nutshell that Jesus gave, although I didn't realize it at the time. And the gist of our time together in this preparation for marriage seminar was this. For the men, I would say, Lord, here's my life, here's my heart, warts and all. Cultivate in me Ephesians 5 qualities to be the Ephesians 5 husband you would have me be whether you give me a wife or whether you don't. In the same way with the gals, we would say, here's my heart, warts and all. Cultivate in me a Proverbs 31 woman that you would have me be, whether you give me a husband or whether you do not. What James and John were asking in a nutshell was we want you to, we want to sit in your glory and what Jesus said is that there's a requirement, there's a cost that comes with this. We like to sing and kind of glibly do so. In my life, Lord, be glorified. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a, it's a wonderful song. But what you're actually doing if you're saying this is, in my life, Lord, pass me the cup. Be baptized. You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And they say, oh, yeah, we're able. We're going to see that tomorrow. We'll see tie-in things with this tomorrow as well. Beloved, the truth of the matter is it calls us to walk with him. This is not prosperity gospel. 
This is not an easy believism. If you view him as being worthy, you'll do this. If you view eternity as where your true treasure is, you will do this. If you do not, it is far too hard of a cost to do. But he invites us to do so.